0: About the future, the ultimate future. We're thinking about eternity. Uh, We're thinking about heaven and hell. Um, It is a massive topic. It is a challenging topic. Um, And there are all sorts of reasons why people think actually we shouldn't think about the ultimate future at all. Uh, We shouldn't think about the end times. We shouldn't think about eternity. Uh, And so I would love you. I'd love you just to take a moment of quiet and to pray for me as I speak, and then I'm going to pray for all of us. So let's just take 10 seconds. I'd love you to pray uh, for me, please. And Lord God, I pray uh, for us all now as we look at what is such a, a big topic, topic, a massive topic, a, um, a controversial topic. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us, you'd graciously help us, help us understand what your word says. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so many people, I would say in Clapham, many people in this world, uh, their view is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So we die, and then we are no more. So if that's the case, let's just focus on the here and now, because there is nothing after we die. But there are many Christians, many people who believe that when we die, that we are, that we continue, actually many Christians still don't want to think about the future. Some people think, well, you know, people get weirdly obsessed about the future, predicting Jesus's return, who's the Antichrist, you know, how the book of Revelation might point to Brexit, whatever it might be. Um, and some people think it's sort of too full of debate and controversy, so avoid it. Some people think it's irrelevant uh, to the here and now. But I'd love us just to start by recognizing four reasons why I think we must think about the ultimate future. Reason number one, the Bible is full of the ultimate future. So just take uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, Matthew uh, 5-7, 20 times in that sermon, Jesus mentions the ultimate eternal future. Every book of the New Testament, apart from three, talks about Jesus' return. Second reason, the ultimate future directs what the Bible teaches. What I mean by that is, that, you know, just take again, Jesus' is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' is teaching on adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, that turns on the idea of hell. Jesus' is teaching on money in the Sermon on the Mount turns on the idea of treasure in heaven. So, the ultimate future directs what the Bible teaches. Third reason, without understanding the ultimate future, we will believe the wrong thing. Because we all believe something about the future. We all have a worldview on the future. And if we don't understand what the Bible teaches us, well, we'll undoubtedly be influenced by other authorities. And some things about the ultimate future will overplay, and some things will underplay. And then the fourth reason why to think about the ultimate future is this, that our belief in the ultimate future affects how we live now. And that really is the most key point that I'd love to get across uh, to each one of us this evening. That our belief, whatever we believe about the ultimate future, actually that is going to impact how you or I live, how you or I think, what we do in the here and now. Whatever our belief is about the future, it'll impact us. Think of a, a building site a building site with sort of a crane and rubble and mud and all sorts of things everywhere. It looks a mess, but you know, outside the building site, you always see one of those architects' drawing of what it's going to look like in the final thing. You know, this shiny, sleek, deluxe building, whatever it might be. You see that, but actually, at the time, there's the crane, the rubble, and the mess. When we read of the eternal future, we are reading of that end goal. We're reading of the end goal, and it helps us to cope with all the mess and the rubble and the mud in the present. Our view of the future impacts how we live in the present. And so the reality is, actually, that if we understand correctly the eternal future, our lives now will be more in line with how God wants us to live. C.S. Lewis wrote this once. He wrote, If you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And so what I'd love you to do, just uh, with your neighbor, I'd love you to just, just chat on that just for two minutes. I want you to just chat. How do your beliefs about the ultimate future, how do they impact how you live now? in the present. Just two minutes. How do your beliefs about the ultimate future, how do they impact how you live now in the present? Two minutes with your neighbor. Just chat on that. Go for it. Okay. I'd love you to come back together again now. So we thought there about why. uh, Why think about the ultimate future? We're now going to think about what? What do we actually know about the ultimate future? What do we actually know? Well, first of all, what do we not know? What don't we know? We do not know. When Jesus Christ will return. We don't know the hour, the date, the time. So up there on the screen, I hope, will come Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 32 to 37. Jesus says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We do not know when Jesus is going to return. What about what we're not sure about? Uh, We're not sure about all sorts of things. We're not sure about the rapture, the millennium, the antichrist, the marks of the beast, uh, all sorts of things. Christians differ on their views on them. None of them, I would say, are the main focus of the Bible. What do we know? What do we know? We do know that Jesus will return. We know that Jesus will return. Up there on the screen, Matthew 24, verse uh, 44, Jesus says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus will return. And he will return, not just sort of spiritually in our hearts, but he will return physically Bodily. Look at what it says at the beginning of Acts. Michael was uh, showing us some bits from Acts. This is Acts 1.11. The angels uh, speaking to uh, the disciples as Jesus rises, uh, ascended into heaven. What do they say? Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way. He'll come back in the same way. Bodily, physically, he will return. He will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, uh, you'll see there on the handout, what I was going to do now was uh, get us to think a bit more about this return of Jesus in terms of two concepts that are spoken a lot about in the Bible. The day of the Lord and the day of judgment. Now, I, I realize I've got rather a lot of stuff, so we're going to cut the first one. Let's go straight to the day of judgment. Let's think a bit about the day of judgment. So, that's uh, towards the bottom of page one of the handout. Now, we may f- I'd find the idea of the day of judgment a difficult concept at first. But I think, actually, if we think about the day of judgment and Jesus returning and to come as in judgment, actually, if we think about it for any time at all, we see, actually, it is an incredibly good thing. Because every single one of us here, we have an inbuilt sense of justice that God has put in us. There is a natural indignation in us when justice is not done. I mean, just witness the whole hoo-ha uh, about the Australian cricket team tampering with a cricket ball. I mean, it is incredible. A little ball, a little bit of yellow tape, or possibly it was sandpaper, whatever it was, stop, uh, making a ball swing a little bit earlier than it normally does, and a huge hoo-ha, because justice has not been done. The world is full of injustice. Injustice far, far more significant than any swinging cricket ball. Injustice is on a big scale, mass murders. Injustice is on the personal scale, you or I being mistreated. And if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, he cannot sweep all wrongdoing under the carpet. He can't turn a blind eye to the injustices in the world and tolerate evil. I would not want to worship a God that just ignored evil. Now, God's judgment... It is a demonstration that God is loving. I couldn't believe in a God who was not a God of judgment. And that is what we see throughout the whole Bible. Judgment is a persistent theme in the Bible because it's inevitable. It's saying that God, he is the true king of the world. We are the rebels. And judgment day when Jesus returns is God bringing his rule completely back over the world when he stops letting us rebel. But if there's a judgment, of course that has personal implications for me, and it has personal implications for you, because all of us, that means we are accountable to God. We're accountable to God for our words, our thoughts, and our actions, which are not all perfect. And actually, you know, as as we approach Easter, As we approach Easter, so in a few days' time, Easter is not just, yippee, Jesus has risen from the dead. It is that. Don't get me wrong. It is wonderful. We praise God for the hope that we have. But it is not just Easter, yippee. It is also Easter, watch out. It's Easter, watch out, because Jesus' resurrection is the proof that Jesus Christ is alive and one day he will judge this world with justice. Acts 17 verse 31 says this, says, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, it is wonderful, but it is also the proof that a judgment day will come. So how does this day of judgment work? Well, it involves two different types of judgment. The first is a familiar way, the second perhaps less so. First of all, here's the familiar one, judgment according to the gospel. So people will be judged according to whether they have believed the gospel, whether they put their trust in Jesus. The gospel, it is God's offer of reconciliation with him through Jesus. So John famously writes, John 3, verse 36. John writes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Or well, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, he writes, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So those are strong words, and that's talking about the judgment of our eternal destiny. And it revolves around repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus. So that's judgment according to the gospel, but then there is also judgment according to all of life. So yes, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saved, we have eternal life. But there is still, according to the Bible, there is an assessment of our lives on judgment day. So Romans 14 verse 12 will come up there. It says, so then we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Or Hebrews 4, verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Those verses, they're saying Christians, people like you and I, if we're trusting in Jesus, we must give an account to God of our lives. Now, there is no fear for the Christian about Judgment Day. We can approach it with calm, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that nothing separates those who are in Christ from the love of God, but we are still accountable. It is still right that our life is brought under God's gaze and the way that we have lived for him will be revealed. Um, I love William Wilberforce's wonderful quote on this. This is uh, something he wrote in his uh, prayer journal in his 20s. He was in his 20s and he wrote this, He said, I resolve to endeavor henceforth to live more for the glory of God and the good of my fellow creatures, to live more by rule as in the presence of him by whom I shall finally be judged. See there, Wilberforce's, his clarity about the final judgment, his view of that ultimate future, in the presence of him by whom I shall be finally judged. That's his view of the ultimate future. That impacts how he lived in the present. For the glory of God and for the good of others. His ultimate future thats what we're going to come back to again and again, impacting how he lived in the present. And I'd love you again just to turn to your neighbor and just to go, Are you like Wilberforce? Are you like Wilberforce? Is that your view of the ultimate future? And is that how you live in the present, for the glory of God and the good of others? And if that is your view of the future, are you, is that the reason that you're living the way you are now or not? It's just a couple of minutes, just to compare yourself to what Wilberforce said. Go for it. Fantastic. Let's come back together again, shall we? Okay, what I would love you to do is turn over the handout to the next page, to the back of it, and you'll see we're on to point C and hell. Now, this is the biggie. This is the biggie. Um, what I want to say as I begin to talk about hell um, is I'm trying to make this not me pontificating on my personal thoughts, um, but me trying to say, what does the Bible say? What does scripture say about hell? And it's a big subject, it's a controversial subject, I'm aware that some of the stuff I may say may make some of you feel angry. And there's going to be all sorts of different emotions that come up as I talk about hell, and that is fine. And what I would love is that whatever emotions we might be feeling, as I try and say, this is what the Bible says, I'd love us to head back to Scripture, to check it with Scripture and say, what do we think Scripture actually says? Okay? Is that all right? Fantastic. So, um, Rodin, his uh, sculpture, The Thinker, actually, it was originally entitled The Gates of Hell. It's the thinker contemplating the fate of people going to hell. And we do need to think about hell. We can't just ignore it. It's not a nice topic, but we've got to think about it. Jesus Christ spoke about hell more than anybody else spoke about hell in the Bible. Jesus, who is the most loving person who ever lived, and he describes hell as a place of agony and torment, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, where it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where it's an eternal fire. So it is no side issue. If we try and sort of edit out hell from our Christian thinking, we are changing the gospel. But I want to urge this, please let us not talk about hell glibly or nonchalantly. We should never talk about hell without pain or emotion. Jesus, he wept over the people of Jerusalem as he contemplated their fate. Paul wrote of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish he felt in his heart for the people of Israel. He said he was willing to be cursed and cut off from Christ if thereby his people might be saved. For three whole years in Ephesus, he says, I never stop warning each of you day and night with tears. We need far more tears when speaking about hell. So what is hell like according to the Bible? The truth is we don't know loads about it. Often symbolic language is used. I mean, hell, it cannot be both a place of literal fire and literal utter darkness at the same time, can it? Because if you've got fire, then you haven't got darkness. So there's lots of symbolic language being used. But I would say what we can know about hell is these three things that you'll see there at the top of the page. Firstly, it's a place of punishment. Sin deserves punishment, and God will punish it. So Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So it's a place of punishment. Secondly, we find in the Bible it's a place of destruction, sort of idea of utter ruin. Jesus says, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And then we find that it is a place of exclusion too. So there's a common language of Jesus saying, you know, there's the the idea we're often invited and encouraged to God's heavenly banquet, but we've got to be invited, got to accept the invitation before it's too late, because one day Jesus says it will be too late. And we're told that God will shut us out from the heavenly banquet. Jesus will say, I don't know you, away from me. That's Luke chapter 13. So the idea of exclusion. These verses you'll see there on the sheet uh, from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you like, they capture all three of these ideas. If you look at those verses, Paul writes, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So That's the punishment idea. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. That's the destruction idea. And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the exclusion idea. And I'm pretty certain you will agree with me. As you look at those three concepts, those three descriptions, it is a terrifying picture. It's a terrifying picture because there will be people in hell. Universalism does not seem to be taught in the Bible that all people just end up in heaven in the end. And there's nothing in the Bible about escape from hell. There's not a so sort of second chance after death, or, or the idea of purgatory. And it seems that there is conscious punishment forever. Now, some people have advocated the idea of annihilationism, uh, the idea that if you don't go to heaven, then you cease to exist. So the idea: either you're a follower of Jesus and you go to heaven when you die, or you're not a follower of Jesus in which case you cease to exist after death. And the idea of that, that comes from picking up the imagery of the destruction imagery that's talked about in the Bible. So you're destroyed, you cease to exist. Now, I've got to say, I understand the desire for annihilationism to be true. For for those who aren't going to heaven to cease to exist. That, That avoids us having to contemplate eternal punishment. But I have to say, to me, it does not seem to fit with what Jesus said or with what the Bible more broadly says. So, for example, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 4 and 5, will come up on the screen, he said this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, if hell is simply ceasing to exist, then those words of Jesus, they're meaningless. Because all there is to fear in that case is death. But Jesus is clear. He says that there's something more terrible, a more terrible reality after death for those who are not followers of him. He's saying we don't just cease to exist when we die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, uh, Paul's writing, he talks about how Jesus, Jesus comes to save us from the coming wrath. So it, it seems he's saying it's not just a gospel of missing out on heaven if you don't believe in Jesus, but it seems to be we are saved from hell, from God's wrath, through the cross for heaven. Now, there are some people who've thought about this I can't even said it so long annihilationism a bit more, and recognized this. They've recognized that actually, saying you cease to exist when you die, that can't work. It doesn't work with Scripture. And so they recognize this, but they say, so there must be some time that is spent in hell for those who are not following Jesus, because of verses like the ones we've just looked at. So they have a more possible annihilationist view, which is that people go to hell for a period of time before they are eventually destroyed and are no more. So that people who aren't trusting in Jesus, there is conscious punishment for a limited period of time, but after a period of time, they're destroyed and they're no more. Now, the first, most famous person to argue that um, is the person who's one of my greatest heroes. You've heard me talking about him before, John Stopp. Um but I've got to say, on the basis of all the biblical evidence, I am not convinced that John Stodd is right. It's about the only place I disagree with him. Uh, and my main reasons for saying that are twofold, biblically and philosophically. First, biblically, in the Bible, eternal punishment is contrasted with eternal life. So Jesus says it in the same verse, Matthew 25, verse 46. He says, they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. And when we're thinking about eternal life, we think eternal life, and we're we're confident that really means eternal. I'm not quite sure that Jesus would have meant eternal life, and that is eternal, but eternal punishment, but that's not eternal in the same sentence. So that's the sort of biblical view. There's also the philosophical view as to how come some people cease to exist at some arbitrary point after death, and some people continue to exist for eternity. It seems, it seems to me an arbitrary classification when the Bible seems to suggest we keep existing forever after death. Now, that's a lot, I know. Um, if all that is true, if hell involves eternal punishment and we exist eternally, we, you and me, we have some big questions to ask. Here's the first question: Is hell just? Is it fair? I was chatting with about this with someone just a few days ago, and that's exactly what they said: Is that fair? Can that possibly be fair? You know, does the punishment fit the crime? I mean, we may not be innocent. We all know that we have sin, but do we feel that we or other people deserve hell, eternal punishment? Feels like a bit like sort of someone being given a life sentence for stealing a Mars bar or scuffing up a a cricket ball. You know, you get given a life sentence in prison for that. That would seem unreasonable, wouldn't it? Well, is hell like that? Or is it just, is it fair? Well, the Bible says that what makes our sin so serious is not so much what we do, but it's so much it's rather about who our sin is against. So imagine me driving my car. Imagine me driving my car and I hit a snail, okay? Actually, it's no big deal if I hit a snail unless you're a snail lover. Imagine I'm driving my car and I hit a pigeon, bit more serious. Imagine I drive my car and I hit a dog, now I'm legally required to stop and check for the dog. Imagine I drive my car and I hit a person, that is far, far more serious. It's who or what I have hit that determines the seriousness of the crime. And the Bible says our sin is so serious because it's ultimately not against other people, but ultimately it's against God. So remember King David. King David, he'd murdered, committed adultery, and he says this to God, Psalm 51. He says, Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So the Bible says that sin ultimately isn't about doing wrong to other people. That's the outworking of it. But the ultimate thing is about us declaring our independence of God. Us turning our backs on God, living our way rather than his, rejecting his rightful rule over our lives. And it is because of the greatness of God. He's not a little snail. He's not a local deity just for the Western world. But he is the almighty, the all-powerful, the cosmic ruler who created everything. That is what makes our sin so serious. And the result of our independence from God is that God gives us, in effect, God gives us what we ask for. If we ask in this life, if we ask to live our lives without him now, he lets us, if you like, do the same in eternity. To be separate from him in eternity. C.S. Lewis said it famously. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end to them, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And you know, when we read Revelation, if you read Revelation, Revelation 16 verse 7, when God's judgment comes on the judgment day, the cry comes in Revelation 17 that God is true and just in his judgments on people. He will only do what is right, it says. God will do nothing that is unjust. So that's the first question just to try and think through. Is hell just? Second question to think through is, is God loving? Is God loving? Even if we think that hell is just, we might still be saying, how on earth can God be loving if he's looking forward to casting people into hell? Well, let me say that is the opposite of what the Bible says about God. God is not looking forward to people going to hell. God calls on people to turn away from sin, to turn back to him rather than face punishment. There's a verse in Ezekiel that says that. Uh, Or or in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, uh, Peter writes this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we're seeing there that God longs for people to avoid hell. We're seeing that every day that Jesus' return is delayed, it is a sign of God's patience with you, with me, with this world. And in fact, as we know, not only does God not want his people to go to 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 hell, God has done everything possible so we might not have to go to hell. On the cross, Jesus suffered more than physical pain. Jesus on the cross experienced hell. You heard Michael on Sunday. He spoke about how Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Jesus endured hell for us on the cross. See, the cross, it tells us how bad our sin is. But the cross also tells us how loved we are, that God has acted to give us a way out. You see, the only way that a God of justice cannot send you or me to hell is for Him to take hell in our place. God doesn't want us to go to hell, but we and every single person on this planet, we have a choice. Either we pay for our sin ourselves in hell, or Jesus pays for it on our behalf on the cross. Whether he pays or we pay, someone must pay because justice must be done. And so the only way for you or I to go to hell is for you or I to trample over the cross, to disregard what God has so lovingly done for us. How does this view of the future how does it impact us in the present? Here here are three implications. Number one, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. C.S. Lewis writes this about the day Jesus returns. He says, It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It'll be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so I want to say tonight if there is anyone here and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, if you're not yet believing in him, please would you respond to that invitation? That invitation to the eternal heavenly banquet, rather than being shut out from it. First, believe the gospel. Second, speak the gospel. We are to warn others. God is calling back people to himself through us, through Christians. Uh, That verse that's going to come up in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says, We implore you, he is begging people to turn to Jesus. In 1854, the the criminal, Charlie Peace, was taken from his cell to be hanged. And before the hanging, a vicar read aloud from the prayer book, as always used to happen before a hanging. And the, the vicar read out these words. From the prayer book, those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release with which uh, which death itself can bring. And Charlie Peace, as he was going on the way to be hung, he stopped and he turned to the vicar and he said to the vicar, do you actually believe what you have just been reading out? He wanted to know how on earth the vicar could believe something like that and not be urging Charlie Peace to turn to Jesus. And then it's recorded that Charlie Peace said these words. He said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church say you believe about heaven and hell, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on my hands and knees and think it a worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. So speak the gospel. This Easter, can we implore people to turn to Jesus? Implore people to come and hear of Jesus here. Believe the gospel, speak the gospel. Thirdly, live the gospel. Live the gospel. And by that, I think I mean two things particularly. Firstly, Jesus applies the existence of hell to those who follow him by encouraging us to be radical with sin. He says, to continue to sin is to flirt with hell. And then he also talks about it in the sense of being faithful to God. He says, if you like, our fear of hell should keep us faithful to God. Polycarp, who was the leader of the church in Smyrna, 2nd century AD, uh, he was about to be burnt in a fire if he didn't, uh, didn't um, recant his faith. This is what Polycarp said. He said, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and is then quenched but you, do not know, you, you know not of the fire of judgment to come and the fire of the eternal punishment. Bring what you will. And he was faithful to Jesus, and he was burnt in the fire. Now, I'm aware I have said a lot, and a lot that is so challenging, and it's not particularly comfortable. I want to summarize by saying thinking on hell is sobering. Thinking on hell, we do it with tears. But we, we need to. It is a reality check. It put things in, puts things in perspective. And again, its existence in the ultimate future should impact how we live now in the present. I'd love you to take two minutes. And just your neighbor, how are you feeling? And what is the one thing that you've just heard then that you want to take away that you've heard about hell? Just two minutes, off you go. Okay, if I could draw us back together again for one final time. Um now I have spent I've spent more time on hell this evening. Not because I like talking about hell, I don't. Um, but because we generally think about it less. There's generally less teaching on it. Um so I thought it was important to this evening spend more time on it. Um, but we're gonna think now about heaven. Um and um we don't want to be people that focus on hell the whole time, because that's not what we should be doing. We should be focusing on, on heaven. And, but we need to think about it. And uh, you know how people often say, how, like when you've got a diamond, um, actually when you put it behind a black uh, back cloth, then the diamond sparkles all the more brightly. And in a sense, that's what we need to do. We, we've been looking at hell, but actually when we think about heaven in the light of hell, actually the wonder, the sparkle, the amazingness of heaven shines all the more brightly. So let's now turn in the the last seven, eight minutes just to think about heaven. Um, Up on the screen are gonna come three uh, verses. First one's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the thief on the cross. We'll be thinking about it a Good Friday at the traditional service. The thief on the cross, he puts his trust in Jesus and Jesus says to him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Most amazing words. Today you'll be with me In paradise. When Paul speaks about death and about going to heaven, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. Again, he says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And when you see those three verses, you'll see the key fact of all those things, it is about being with Christ. When we die, if we're trusting in Christ, we will go straight to be with Christ in heaven. The focus of heaven is us being with Christ, us being with him, not separated for him, but with Christ for eternity. But here perhaps is a surprise. The focus of heaven is being with Christ, but here's the surprise. Heaven is not our final destination. In a sense, heaven is temporary. Because the Bible says we look forward to our final destination, and our final destination is the new heaven and the new earth, or sometimes called the new creation. Our ultimate hope is not removal from this world to another existence in heaven, but it is to the recreation of this world, to the new heaven and the new earth. So Revelation 21, right at the end of the Bible, verses 1 to 5, speaks of the final destination. Let me just read a bit of it so you can see it. Uh, he, He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amazing picture of the final destination, the new heaven and the new earth. And here's just a note, here's the difference between the new heaven and the new earth and heaven. While in heaven, we will have a perfect relationship with Jesus and we will be perfect people free from sin, the problem with heaven is heaven is disembodied. Heaven is not a perfect place physically, it is It is disembodied. But the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, unlike heaven, it is physical, and we are physical. We will have resurrection bodies just like Jesus has. So in John, uh, John says, 1 John 3, verse 2, We know that when Christ appears, when he returns, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him, not just with him, but we'll be like him. We'll have resurrection bodies. So often you see the resurrection of Jesus that we think about at Easter, So often it's seen as a startling, one-off event in this world. Yet the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundational event of the world as as it has begun to be. What God did for one man in the middle of history that first Easter, God will do for all people who trust in Jesus when Jesus returns. He will give us resurrection bodies. In fact, not just for Christians, but actually for the entire cosmos. As the theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, he says, the raised body of Christ acts as an embodied promise for the whole creation. Now, let's finally, let's just think about how this wonderful view of the ultimate future, how it impacts us now. Here again are three implications. They're the same three as we thought about with hell, but in reverse order. Okay? So, number three, live the gospel live the gospel. If life after death is bodiless, if heaven is our home, there's no final embodied new creation, then there is no motivation for improving physical situations in the here and now. So if we see a homeless person, should we just share the good news about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins with them because their soul being right with God is all that matters? Or should we be concerned about them physically too, and be involved in things like robes or or, or the Ace of Clubs, because we're interested in their physical stuff too. If the resurrection of the body in the new creation is true, we should be interested in the physical and emotional well-being of people now, just as we should be interested in their spiritual well-being. Christians are not just about saving souls for a future in a disembodied heaven. And that means evangelism and social action. They are actually part of the one mission of the church. Our evangelism, it should always have a social action dimension, and our social action should always have an evangelistic dimension. Here's a quote uh, especially relevant to us uh, from N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Tom Wright writes this. He says, It is interesting that evangelicals began to shy away from seeing social and political action as an inherent part of the gospel, the Wilberforce vision, if you like, around the same time as they shied away from thinking about the final bodily resurrection and spoke instead of going home to a disembodied heaven. So what Holy Trinity Clapham was about back then with Wilberforce, this Wilberforce vision, we are to continue to be about in this same church today. Live the gospel. Secondly, speak the gospel. Here's the problem. Here's the problem if we swing the pendulum too far. And if we become so fixated on the new creation as opposed to heaven, as I've got to say some modern theologians I think are, if we for, that what happens if we just focus on, on the, the bodily new creation, we forget that the big thing, the most important thing in both heaven and in the final new creation, the most important thing is being with Christ. That is the most important thing in heaven. That is the most important thing in the new heaven and the new earth, being with Christ. The fall It was cosmic in extent, with the whole world being out of kilter with God. But it incurred due to the rebellion of individuals. And similarly, salvation, it is cosmic in extent. It leads to the new creation. But it is centered on the salvation of individuals. You and me personally putting our trust in Jesus and being reconciled with God. And so at the very center of everything we're about must be the central call for individuals to repent and believe in Jesus, to be a part of this wonderful new creation that the Bible makes so clear. And then lastly, we've had live the gospel, speak the gospel, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Just take one of those verses. I'll take 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Paul writes this, if only for this life, We have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all others. It is not worth you or I being a Christian if it is only for this life. The gospel is not a message that Jesus solves all my problems now and fulfills me now. There will be some fulfillment now, wonderful, but there will not be complete fulfillment. If we take away the future hope, if we take away the eternal hope, it is a completely different gospel. And Paul says we are to be pitied more than all people. The key is eternal life, the certain future hope that we have in Jesus, eternal life. It starts now, but it goes on into eternity. And we must let everything about that ultimate future, everything, we must let it impact everything about our lives now in the present today. Let me finish with C.S. Lewis. I've quoted him quite a few times, I know. Uh, This is um, from the end of the last battle, so the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And right at the end of that book, Jesus is speaking, uh, Aslan is speaking, Jesus, and he's speaking to the children, and this is what it says. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us... This is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. May you and I today, may we live in the light of that future, eternal, great story. Can I pray to close? Let's pray. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Lord God, we praise you this day for the gospel, that it is good news. We thank you for the wonder of eternal life. We acknowledge how, as we've thought about hell, it challenges us, it shakes us up, the thought of people perishing. And we pray, Lord, that we might be people who live in the light of the ultimate future. Lord, help us be people who believe the gospel, who speak the gospel, and who live the gospel. And just in a moment of quiet, we just, just like Michael was asking us to do at the start, maybe just pray for one person you know right now who hasn't yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we implore you to work in those people's lives. And we pray that you would help us implore them to be reconciled to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.